listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 28th, 2014. This week, episode 320 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. Spring is finally here. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Yep, I'm here. I hope you're right that it is spring, so so, I got my fingers crossed. You and me both. Anyway, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, is judging a science fair today. He will be back for episode two, or part two of this episode next week. Today's segments include an interview with Dr. Charlene Baer. We're going to talk about uh, her recent election to the IAQA Hall of Fame and her work at the uh, Georgia Tech Research Institute. And we're going to talk a little bit about her work with the USGBC. And then uh, hopefully we'll get all that done today. And next week we'll talk a little more about her own company, Hygieia. But anyway, we'll do that today. Then we'll, uh, of course, Come back next week and finish up. Hopefully our good doctor will be back with us, Dr. Wow, next week. Of course, we'll stop halfway through and do our halftime. But other than that, we're going straight through. So let's get started by thanking our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, you can stream past shows right from our homepage at iaqradio.com, or you can follow the link that says Go to Show or the one that says Listen Live. You can download shows from the Talk Shoe website, and of course, you can download shows from the iTunes podcast section. Just type in IAQ Radio. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com and last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com dr charlene bear is the chairman and chief science officer at hygia sciences founded to commercialize her technology for detecting human diseases from breath and her indoor air quality research She is a Senior Research Fellow for Materials and Healthy Buildings at the United States Green Building Council, as well as the past Vice Chair of their Research Committee. Additionally, she is a Principal Research Scientist at Georgia Tech Research Institute. Over the last 30 years, her research has spanned the gamut of indoor environments. Her group was one of the early leaders in sick building and product emission research. She has spent much of her career developing methodologies to detect indoor air contaminants at increasingly low levels of detection. One of her long-term research areas is investigating the relationship between asthma and airborne exposure and developing real-time wearable exposure monitoring system for children. She is currently researching breath analysis for the detection of health states 
exposures, and diseases. She was inducted into the IAQA Hall of Fame in March 2014, and she holds multiple patents and is the author and presenter of over 150 papers. She holds a Ph.D. and a master's degree from Emory University and a Bachelor of Science from Baylor University in Chemistry. Let's see, we've got some music for Dr. Bear. Welcome, sulfur dioxide, hello, carbon monoxide, the air, the air is everywhere. Vapor and fume at the stone of my tomb, breathing like a sullen perfume, eating at the stone of my tomb. Welcome, sulfur dioxide, hello, carbon monoxide. All right, Dr. Bear, do we have you on the line? Yes, we do. All right, I don't know if you've ever heard that song or not, but... Uh, no, I was wondering where you got that. <laughs> Cliff, Cliff reaches deep into the archives for those. We will send you that along with the blog he does for the show. And uh, at the end of the show, Cliff does a blog we send out. We like to have you review it and check it out. But anyway, we, we uh, really appreciate having you on. It's been great. You, you've got a long list of accomplishments. Um, we talked about the IAQA Hall of Fame, but I wanted to start with your, your job at Georgia Tech Research Institute. You've been there for quite a while. You were a principal researcher. And I wondered maybe if you could just explain to listeners a little bit about what, what type of research you've worked on there. Um, I, I was brought in to, uh, frankly, I was brought in initially because of the work I was doing in water and sediments, and we kind of moved into air because air is cleaner, um, harder to do, much more challenging and more fun. So most of what I have done over the years there has, has been related to indoor air research, um, some outdoor air because you have to understand both. But we started with some of the early formaldehyde product emission work. Uh, developing methodology. Uh, our first really big building actually was the EPA building in Atlanta that had numerous indoor air quality problems. Um, that kind of got us going. We moved into working with the carpet companies and various other companies as the years have gone on, developing how to actually look at indoor air. So you were doing uh, water, essentially, and, and sediment, I believe you said, and then I, I was going to ask how you got involved in indoor air quality, but it's you, you kind of explained that. I guess that was a part of being brought on at Georgia Tech. Right. Well, um, you know, over, while I was at Georgia Tech, we kind of moved into air. That uh, research was going that way. It is definitely cleaner <laughs> um, than than water and sediment. Now. You mentioned the EPA building, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've probably heard that from five or ten people now that they were involved in that project in some way, and that's an interesting project, and, and, and I'm curious. What was your role in, in the, um, or Georgia Tech's role in that early, I guess we would call it a sick building syndrome uh, case? Well, you're, you're probably talking about the Waterside Mall, and I, I was part of the carpet policy dialogue, which um, we came out of the water quality, you know, all of that. Mm. But um, the, our first building actually was the EPA building here in Atlanta, which happened before Waterside Mall. Um, oh, okay. What was the yeah. what was the concern there? If we can talk about it, 
Um, they brought in a lot of medium density fiberboard core cubicles. It was some of the early cubicle land. Um, they put the cubicles from floor to ceiling in many of the areas. Uh, so there's no ventilation. Um, the, the building was a, a rental place that had poor ventilation anyway. Um, you put those in there and then you had the high formaldehyde release. Then they also part of, they also had an issue, actually it was a really interesting research area, not for the, for them, but it was for us. <laughs> um, using, uh, is great scented air fresheners that because of the location of the bathrooms, when the elevators went up and down, when elevators operate, they actually create a vacuum. They would suck large quantities of this um, air cleaner, you know, this air freshener out into the air and distribute it through the building. And pe- so it's truly a pathway issue. I see. And did people have, uh, you know, like the complaints about that or, or actual health issues that, that developed as a result of all this? Both. Uh, there were actually there are, were actually people, and probably more from the formaldehyde, but who actually won working comp um, court cases against EPA on that one. Hmm. Now I'm curious with, with these um, dividers. I'm sure we're all familiar with these office dividers. Uh, over the years, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, the manufacturers have gotten better at at ensuring that there aren't a lot of off-gassing products coming off of these. Am I accurate in saying that, or would you say that uh, we still have some work to do? Most of them are. You know, the reputable companies definitely are. Um, but, you know, I, I honestly haven't looked at a lot of them in a long time, so it's, it's, you know, you have to be, I have to be careful what I say as far as really saying. But I, I think the majority of them are better. They, you know, it, medium-density fiberboard is, not commonly used in um, office buildings much anymore. Okay. And that was the one that had a lot of uh, formaldehyde in it because... Yeah, of that was very high formaldehyde in it. I see. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Um, I guess what, when you were growing up, were you the only girl that was really interested in, in science in, in many of the classes that you taught? Well, the, yeah, the example I usually give, I, uh, at Baylor, I was one of the very few women in chemistry. And, um, there was really only one other female that wanted to, uh, go into chemistry as a profession. And they actually had the nerve <laughs> to, to take us aside and tell us that we should become scientific librarians because that was a good position for females. Oh. Uh, notice I didn't pay too much attention to that. Right. Um, <laughs> it might have been the worst thing to tell you, huh? <laughs> yeah, it kind of pushed me the other way. <laughs> what? Um, would you mind, what, what year would have that been? How long ago was this? I, I graduated, I've got a lot of stories on this. I graduated from college in 1972. Okay. Okay. Um, at the time, um, a lot of things were backwards. Um, Baylor Med School actually gave up their federal funding for a while so that they would not have to accept females, females into their medical program. Wow. And I know you have two daughters that are uh, 
oh, at least one is in the sciences now. And I'm curious, how do you feel we've come along with respect to encouraging um, young women to get involved in the sciences? Do you think it was a lot better, a little bit better, or just uh, we still need a lot of improvement? It's a little bit better. Okay. Um, there, there, there still is, especially probably in the southeast. Um, there's still definitely room for improvement. Um, we uh, still have lower salaries than men. When we do go, we do need to encourage the, the girls. Um, there's still the issue of boys don't like me if I go and you know if I show I'm too smart and go into science. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's still all of those attitudes out there. Um, we need. There's also the fear of if I have. A profession like this that requires significant amounts of time um, in uh, am I going to be able to have children? Am I going to be able to have a family and do what I want to with my kids? I mean, I will tell you, I miss very few soccer games. Um, you know, I, I actually have <laughs> had one sponsor that was awfully nice. He, he let me actually cancel a big meeting so that I could, could do something with my children that came up un, unexpected. He told me never to ask him again, but at least <laughs> let me get it the one time. <laughs> um, you, you, know, you, you find enlightened people. You learn to work it. You have to be very organized. You give up sleep, um, but you, you, you work it. I, you know, I, my kids learned at a very, very young age to go to meetings and sit there in the meetings with me and amuse themselves. You know, Charlene, I've got a text question from a listener, and what I'd like to do is maybe combine it a little bit. They've asked, asked if you could tell a kid now about indoor air quality. What what would you, the one thing you would tell a kid now about getting into the indoor air quality profession? And I've got a granddaughter who's three, and I want to kind of broaden it a little bit. How do What would you tell me about helping her somehow be more interested in science in general and then maybe the indoor air quality in, in specific? You know how I, I tell the kids that I had a professor, it wasn't until graduate school. Um, it's really a game. Do you like puzzles? And if you really like to do puzzles, science is the, is the place to go do it. Because it's all a puzzle. How can I solve this puzzle? Uh, that, you know... Um, it's funny you mentioned that. I didn't think my wife could help me with this, but she loves puzzles. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I am all right here. All right. That's, that's a great tip. Uh, anything you wanted to add or. No, I mean, that, that to me is the main thing that it is. That's what research is. It's, it's, I have, I want to figure out why, you know, and I can love see to figure out why I could see it when they're, you know, when, even if you are, you know, my, my wife likes to have her cook and help her cook, but why does that, why does that dough rise or that bread rise or whatever? So I think that's a great tip, asking why and, and getting kids interested in understanding why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go on to uh, what I'd like to talk a little bit is uh, I know you've been heavily involved with asthma, and, and I want to talk a little bit about asthma here because I think that's an important topic. And I'm curious, do you think that um, asthma is an epidemic in the United States? Well, you know, I'm not sure what you 
call you know how how you classify an epidemic specifically. Just the, it is on the rise, significantly on the rise, whether it's in children or adults. Um, in the the last statistics that, that I have that are through the population, one in twelve people in, in the U.S. or eight percent of the population has asthma. And it's in 2001. It was only seven percent, so it's on the rise. Um, approximately one in ten children. Ten percent of children is the average across the United States. In uh, urban areas such as in Georgia, it's up to eighteen percent. In Puerto Rico, it's twenty-seven percent. Wow, twenty-seven percent. Uh, it, it is. It is rising. And that's worldwide. Um, are we, you know, do we do we have more of a problem here in the United States? I, I understand Puerto Rico is not too far off, but um, and that's actually a kind of a I forget what they are a territory. Um, is it more of a problem here than it is in other parts of the world? Um, it really depends on the country. Um, it's the the it's. Varies widely across the world. I mean, some of the high-income countries like ours, it's it's a bigger issue. But um, it's kind of like breast cancer; it's kind of spreading and becoming more common throughout. Some of it is in the the lower-income com- countries. We're now finding it more than we used to. Um, but as pollution gets worse, um, allergies get worse, exposures get worse and it's continuing to rise. The estimate is approximately 11% of asthma worldwide. Hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, um, how did you, I want to talk a little bit about the pocket asthma monitor that I, I believe you developed. I don't know whether it was a project for a team or this was your own idea. Can you tell us a little bit about this device and, and then maybe a little bit about what we've learned from it? Well, I, one of the big problems with asthma is, especially asthma that we know is from exposures, is how do we measure those exposures? We don't really don't know what is the real cause of asthma. Um, is, is there a certain pollutant? We know some certain pollutants seem to be more important than others, uh, especially for exacerbation. Uh, and part of the issue is we can't measure constantly and add up all the exposures that kids have. I always joke about the pollutant is a decade. Um, you know, it, there's something like for a while it's formaldehyde, for a while it was ozone. There's something that's easy to measure, but it's a very, it's indoor air and outdoor air. Any air exposure is a very combination issue. So the whole purpose behind the is developing the monitor, which was funded by HUD, the development was funded by HUD, um, was to try to come up with something that was small enough and safe enough that a child could wear it constantly and be able to measure all of their exposures over time. Uh, and, and, and by measuring a large number of exposures, we were hoping that eventually we will be able to, to narrow it down and say, okay, only, you know, just to pick a couple things, only Nitrous dioxide and ozone seem to be important. So those are the only ones we're going to measure from now on. And then you have a much easier problem to track than, than this, how many things can we measure at one time. Um, what the, our monitor in real time weighs about a pound. We call it the pocket asthma monitor because we put it in the pocket of that 
so that children could wear it easily, or adults, whoever happened to be wearing it at the time. Um, and we could measure, uh, and that, that one, particular one, we can plug different sensors into it, but that particular one measured ozone, um, NO2, formaldehyde, uh, temperature relative humidity. Uh, it did measure particles, but not in real time. Uh, missing something. The oh, total volatile organic compounds. Okay. And it's all in one little box that, that it just continuously measures and it can be worn around while while you, you know, move around. Um, some of the best data actually came out of one adult where we were able to tell he, he wore it into his house and we were able to um, tell that he had significant levels of gasoline, benzene, et cetera, in his house. From the emissions from an old car, he had a garage that was underneath the house. Um, this is something that's really important for people. When you drive into a connected garage, you need to turn off your car immediately and leave the garage door up for a few minutes so the steam can, the exhaust steam can get out of the house. If you don't, you've got exposures in the house. Mm-hmm. And so, over time, with folks wearing these, um, it sounds like and. and correct me again if I'm wrong, that you weren't able to pinpoint, okay, we should focus more on this as opposed to that. Is that accurate? Or, did, or were you able to pinpoint some uh, triggers that were more problematic than others? Uh, well, we haven't because this is the typical world of, of research funding. Uh, this is one of the big problems. You're only funded through a certain point, and then you have to find other funding and we have not found other funding to continue the study on. Um, so that's, that's been a problem. Uh, I have people interested, you know, partners interested that are ready to go if we can ever find the funding to continue the study. What kind of, I'm just curious, what kind of dollar amount would it take to do something like that, to continue this, this uh, important work? Uh, okay. <laughs> You know, I'd have to go back and really start calculating. Um, and you know, it it would to to really do a good large base study. It would take several hundred thousand dollars. Okay, that's just a, I just wanted a ballpark. I didn't know whether it was a million or fifty thousand or whatever. That that's a good that's a good ballpark. I mean, we're you yeah. Know, I, I run into a lot of people, and then I know that um, one of the groups I'm very involved with is doing more research I, it's probably a little out of their uh, means but still you know you put a couple of these groups together and maybe you've got something going there anyway That's right. one of the things that really intrigued me this morning we talked before the show and i don't know whether this information came from the the pocket asthma monitor or some other research that you were involved with or following or whatever but i wish you could i would i'd like for you to talk to our listeners a little bit about a lag time with respect to triggers and asthma attacks. Yeah, we we know, and this this work actually comes from some work done by Jerry Teague uh, during um, the Atlanta Olympics, which ended up being uh, providing a wealth of information. There's a there's a, a three day lag between exposure and when an asthma attack generally occurs. So. This complicates things, particularly when you're trying to track very specific compounds. You can't expose, you know, say I measure an ozone level today, I cannot assume that that child is immediately going to have an asthma attack. It takes three days, basically, for the asthma attack to occur. To make it more complicated, when you're in times 
where there's constant exposure, such as when the ozone levels outdoors are high in the middle of the summer, they're exposed constantly. And so it's difficult to separate that three-day lag time exposure versus what's going on because they're having frequent attacks. They're having constant exposure. And so it's a very complicated process. It's not an easy thing to say, okay, I know you're exposed to this today, so you're probably going to have an asthma attack tomorrow. And, you know, we talked again before the show a little bit about what you just mentioned with respect to ozone and how it affects asthma. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that you – well, maybe maybe you could tell listeners – when we've got outdoor ozone that's high and we have an ozone action day, uh, the first thing is that the ozone definitely is one of the triggers. But secondly, we tell people to stay indoors. How effective is it to stay indoors? I mean, isn't the ozone just going right into their home? We know that twenty-five percent of the approximately twenty-five percent of the outdoor ozone penetrates the building shell. Ozone is very reactive. Uh, for a long time, we thought no ozone would penetrate the shell. Um, then Charlie Welchler proved, proved that to be incorrect and was able, and we've been able to track it. He was able to show that 20, that this, this, uh, 25% level. In our studies, um, we've been able to clearly show that, uh, actually in my house, that, um, 23% of the outdoor ozone penetrates to the inside. And that's done by monitoring outside and inside simultaneously to over time to, to look at the differences, what's coming in. But you're at a much lower level, which is why if, if the ozone levels are high, it's an action day. Staying inside is, is the best thing you can do. Um, Jerry Teague and I wrote a paper long time ago Um on, on this particular thing and showing the, the inflammatory processes. And, and Jerry is very big on trying to encourage schools, let's not have our soccer practices in the afternoon after school. If you're going to do it, let's do it early in the morning before the ozone levels rise to, to minimize the exposures. Okay. That's a great, great point. Um, and then, with respect, now I also figured out what my note was, 25% penetration. So we're getting about 25 And I assume a lot of that has to do with the fact that as the ozone comes into contact with whatever, the insulation, the drywall, the whatever, the reaction occurs and then it's no longer there. It kind of burns itself out on the way in. That's one way to phrase it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically it, yeah. I'm trying to paint a picture here on the radio, you know. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, no, I understand. That's a, that's a good way to phrase it, actually. Uh, I, I never thought about it burning itself in, but yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, I've got one more before we go to halftime. Um, Dr. Bear, what is twitchy lung syndrome? Um, that's a term that, that Jerry uses. Is, it's for... Uh, asthmatic children that are extremely sensitive to the ozone levels, um, and so that it takes very little exposure for them to respond to um, and, and have asthma exacerbation from ozone. I see. Okay, so these are the really hyper, the very sensitive kids. All right, we've got to right. stop. We've got to thank our sponsors. Um, I noticed, by the way, that Dr. Wow has joined us, Dieter. Great to see you could make it. Uh, maybe the science fair got uh, canceled or something. But anyway, 
He'll be joining us for the roundup at the end here. But before we get to the second half of our interview, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Charlene Baird. Dr. Baird, I wanted to um, continue with asthma for just a moment, and then we'll move over to the USGBC uh, position that you're you're now uh, working in. How effective is environmental intervention with respect to controlling these asthma attacks and, and the triggers, et cetera? Um, most of the time, I mean, it, there are different mechanisms for asthma. For the majority of the true asthma, it's very effective. Um, you know, the statistics are that over half of asthma is usually allergic-type asthma, and so things that control mold and control allergies, uh, control environmental exposures, do help most people with asthma. And I'm curious with respect to the the actual causes. You mentioned earlier we don't know what causes asthma. I know that's got to be frustrating for the people researching it, but are there any promising theories that you're aware of with respect to what may be actually causing this asthma problem? Um, Yeah, there's there's different things that are going on. I work with Giovanni Piedemonte, who is now at Cleveland Clinic, he thinks that a specific virus called RSVP um, is is the initiator. I mean, there's there's a lot of people looking for the for the initiator, not the not what causes the exacerbation, but what starts the initial inflammatory processes. Um, so, you know, the, the research like what he's doing and some others are doing. There's other theories. Eventually, we hope will tell us what it is and why. Certain people get asthma and certain people don't. Um, you know, it, it, it's just really pouring the, pouring the money into that type of research to try to control it. 
Um, other things are just constant exposures over time. Uh, anything, any, you know, people who smoke, you know, COPD is almost like adult asthma. It's not asthma, something very different, but it is still a respiratory disease. And the more that the healthier people are, the lower their exposures, um, the better off they'll be in the long run. And the less likely that um, they'll be affected by this, at least as dramatically as some people are. Um, and also, I'm wondering, you know, I saw a study recently, I believe it was out of Harlem, and, and they were using a combination of, you know, environmental controls, but also education, which I guess is kind of tied into the environmental controls. Um, any 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 comments on that, that approach of using the combination of things to try and help lower these issues? We know that that's probably our most effective. Uh, again, this is unfortunately frequently after the effect, after the effect where um, the prevalence or the susceptibility has already occurred. Um, but, yes, education is critical. Uh, people that are asthmatic, um, it is critical that, that they understand what might be the triggers. It's critical that we make parents understand how to reduce exposures and hopefully eliminate some of the problems um, and the issues that are occurring. And I'm just curious, one more. I, I, this this topic really fascinates me. Do different people have different triggers? Of course. Okay. It's like any allergy. Different people have different triggers. And the brain is really smart. I have a, a daughter, my daughter, who is an asthmatic, also is an artist, um, perfumes, ozone, things like that. We know trigger her, and she knows triggers her. But... Um, she is an artist, and she can, because she wants to, can be around certain things that ought to trigger her asthma, but at that particular moment in time, she's more interested in doing her art. So that's where the psychological side comes in. Okay, so there is a psychological component as well. That's that's interesting. Well, let's. I've got to move on to a different topic. I'd like to okay. move on and talk a little bit about your work with the USGBC. Um, you're, you're doing some work with, oh, you know, well, yeah, let's do the USGBC and I'll come back to some of the school stuff. Um, you're now a, a senior research fellow for the U.S. Green Building Council. Can you tell us a little bit about what your goal is there, what your role and your goal is at USGBC? Yes, I actually do several things, but as a senior research scientist, a research fellow for USGBC, it is part of USG, well, let me put this. USGBC was funded by a grant from Google to um, develop a program. It's, it's a combination of education, uh, some research. Um, you know, should this be moved into lead for materials transparency programs, green chemistry, um, materials transparency. How can we have safer materials? more knowledge knowledge about the materials in buildings and how do these relate to design. So that's, uh, you know, much of what we do is uh, I'm one of uh, six fellows. We write in the GBIG Insight uh, blogs. Um, not as frequently, I think, as we're supposed to, but all of us do write. You have to think about your topics Cetera, um, but the I, you know, so there's an educational side. Uh, some of what I'm doing with that is trying to 
understand what's going on globally because things are, are uh, there's unique, different programs in Europe versus, you know, what the EU is doing versus what we are doing. Um, the materials transparency programs are growing in the U.S. Uh, how in, not only do we need the release of information, we also have to know whether there's no choice. You have to use some. In reality, you do have to use some of these products, but you need to be aware of them. Are there safer ways to protect yourself with them? Um, how does all this tie into all of the emissions testing programs, which are different programs, have different purposes? So it's 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 a burgeoning research, um, not just research, but um, it, it's very important to the manufacturers because it's it's you know they're they're trying to understand and find out their information and you know they don't want to kill people, hurt people, or or cause problems and um, so there's all of those pieces together. And they want to sell their products, and they want those products to be recognized by programs like the LEED program, I assume. so. That's right. Um, that's, that's right. And, you... and I was actually talking to someone at the um, AIQA conference, and it's a, it's, it's a particular company that's trying really hard to, to be able to collect the information, and then even sometimes when they collect the information, they still have to get people to buy the product. That's not always as easy as you think. Okay. Can you give us uh, – I've got a text from a listener. Can you give us a, an example of one of the products that would fall into this uh, research that you're doing? What type of product? Um, there, there are a number of companies that are that are participating very heavily in this, such as Armstrong with some of their um, pouring in their, in their um, sealing products. Um I have to be careful who I who I mentioned before to make sure that I'm not crossing any lines. No, um, sure. you know, the, it kind of falls into the living building challenge we're doing there. Um, but the idea is that we hope that uh, I, the example that's been given to me um, by um, one of the people at Google on the green team was he wants to be able to walk into Home Depot and look at two different ceiling tiles and make a different, make a decision whether he wants bunnies or butterflies in his house. He wants it to be that simple. Based totally on the materials that are being, that are listed as being in that product. And that's any number of products. We could have the, you know, ceiling tile, like you mentioned, carpet, floor tile, drywall, paints, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a big challenge. It's a huge challenge, and it's a challenge for them also because the companies have to actually be able to get the information from their suppliers all the way up and down the supply chain. It is not a simple problem. I've got a text question here um, from, from a Canadian listener here. Does the United States have a publication like we do in Canada to help select building products for the chemically hypersensitive? I don't know. Okay. I don't know either. I don't. I've never heard of one, but uh, certainly good to good to uh, check into that. Maybe if you could um, let us know what the title of the the publication is in Canada, because certainly I don't see why we couldn't use it here in the United States. Anyway, um, before we go too far into the USGBC and, and green buildings and all that, let me let's set the the foundation. What is your definition of a green building? <laughs> 
I like to talk about healthy buildings, not just green buildings. Um, and, and a healthy building is slightly different than what people think about green buildings. Usually what people think about green buildings is this building that's energy efficient, uh, is sustainable, and it's not having a adverse impact on the environment. I want to, I'm trying to change that paradigm through um, a lot of my speaking and with a group that I work with at NIH on we want to design around health. And so we want health-centered buildings because we are the most important things in the building and we're the most expensive things in the building. So shouldn't we design for us? So a health-centered building is one that looks at the physical, social, and uh, the physical, social, and uh, psychological um, health of the occupants that are in there. It's sensory variable. It's exciting. It feels good. And as one of my colleagues has said, you feel like you're outside whenever you're inside. So it's a building with no walls. Uh, so that's that's the direction I like to try to take people, and it, it is a different thought process. It may or may not be the most energy-efficient building on the planet. Got it. But it, but energy efficiency is important in in the overall scheme of things, I guess. But Of the, course it is. And... National Institutes of Health, NIH. I think I got that right. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm a little, a little surprised that they are uh, as involved in this. But now that you you kind of define it for me a little better, I I understand why they would be involved with that and would be putting some. I guess they're putting some research money into helping define what a healthy building is and how do we keep them healthy. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be nice, huh? <laughs> We're trying to get them to give us research money, but no. Right now, it's it's mainly a volunteer organization. Um, we speak and we work through other organizations. We are going to put we put on a conference last year. There's going to be another conference probably in December um, at NIH um, on on you know it's a one day on some of these topics. Um, once that gets firmed up, we can let you know. What's the name but, of the group um, again? Uh, what, what Do you have a name, formal name for your group? Yes, it's the Health in Buildings Roundtable. Health in Buildings Roundtable. And does that have a website or anything like that? Um, yes, it does. And I can't tell you what it is off the top of my head. I would, I will have to get it and send it to you. If you could do that, we could ask Cliff to put it in his blog. Cliff, sound good? Yep. All right. Cliff, do you want to jump in here at all? No, keep going. I mean, I, I, my hand hurts. <laughs> Cliff's writing, writing like a madman. I've got another one. All right. Somewhere along the way when I was looking at either your CV or something you wrote, I, I noticed the, the term evidence-based design. And I'm, I'm curious what you mean by evidence-based design. Um, evidence-based design is just what it sounds. It sounds like using, it's, it's mainly used in hospital, right now it's mainly used in hospital design. Um, it was coined by, actually, the, by a professor at Georgia Tech, the term. But the idea is, is to use evidence in design. And instead of designing the same old, same old way, um, let's look at, at what's going on and how can we make the design better. Um, for instance, um, placements of the nursing stations in hospitals so that nurses are better positioned to be able to carry out their duties and 
um, be able to function better, move around better. I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Okay. And I'm, I want to talk a little bit about um, schools. Okay, while we're here, okay. while we're you know, I know that you've done a lot with schools in the past, and and I don't know what how much you're doing right now with schools, but uh, I noticed something in there. What, let's start with the challenges behind defining what health and productivity benefits of green schools are. So we, I know we all kind of that term green's a little fuzzy, but we know it's you know sustainable, healthy, energy efficient, and that's that's good. But you've got some challenges of trying to define how much they help health and productivity. Can you talk to us a little bit about those challenges? Yeah, with with kids, it's it's productivity becomes learning. So it's defining how we can help children to learn better. I I used to joke with kids um, when I'd go in because you see the CO2 levels climb just uh, as the day goes on. And I, you know, I go in there and I kid with him, you know, it's not really the teacher that's making me sleep. It's, the CO, it's because the CO2 levels are going, are rising. And frankly, I do joke about it, but it is, it is a true statement. Um, we get sleepy as the CO2 levels rise. There is data coming out of LBL that shows that as the CO2 levels get approximately around 1,000 to 2,500 um, ppm, that there's loss of cognitive function, strategic thinking. It, it's, you know, it, when we do this to our kids, how can we expect them to learn as well? So we have to be able to define what is learning. It is very difficult to do a, to design a learning test that actually measures learning. So that's one of the areas. Um, and what else goes into that? As far as the teachers go, you start looking at IEQ, not just IAQ. One of the number one um, issues on teachers is loss of voice because they have to yell to go over the noise from the the ventilation system or something else. Uh, So those are all things that fit in there. You, You can't be productive if you can't talk when you're trying to teach. You know, simple things like that. Well, let's let's keep it simple here. What about uh, with respect to schools and, and improvements to say their their building envelope and IAQ, lighting, acoustics, etc. Um, these are all important. But what's the low hanging fruit? What's the stuff that we should be you know not even thinking twice about? It's not all that expensive. Let's just go ahead and do this. Well, I mean, the the simple things are the the number one thing that I go after in most schools is get rid of the plug-in air freshman. You can get, I can go in rooms with three or four of those in there. Um, all you're doing is adding pollutants on top of pollutants. If there's an odor in there, let's clean it. Let's figure out how to get rid of the odor. Maybe we need more ventilation. Maybe we need uh, better cleaning, etc. Right. Let's let's clean it up. Okay. You know, it's, instead of putting something else in there that creates a bigger issue. Um, one of the things people don't understand is that we have this thing called indoor air chemistry. And so what indoor air chemistry means is that there's reactions going on in the building, uh, normally from the ozone that's coming, that's seeping in from the outdoors. We talked about it, that infiltrating. Uh, and it reacts with 
compounds, well, they're, they're terpenes, they're these compounds with double bonds, which are, you know, are many of the things that are in the odorants and that are, are in the cleaning products. Those things in themselves are not necessarily horrible, but then you react it with the ozone and you end up with something that is reactive and it's much worse for you. Um, and you put a lot of air fresheners in a, in a, in a classroom you're going to have a lot more of these reactions ongoing and you're going to have more problems. So that, that to me is the easiest, simplest thing that you can do and handle very quickly. And as soon as I walk into school, that's the first thing I do. That's pull those things out. Interesting. Now let's, I want to, we're going to go to a roundup in a minute here because Dr. Wild did join us. We're, we're getting toward the end, but I had a question that I, skipped over earlier because I wanted to get into the USGBC stuff. Um, earlier, I don't know if it was earlier in your career or um, if it was fairly recently. I think it was a little earlier. You were involved with using um, the volatile organic compound signatures to detect the presence of mold in indoor environments. Can you talk to us a little bit about how, how that's coming, you know, how far that's come along and, and whether or not it's something that uh, we should be looking at a little more? No, you shouldn't be using it. Okay, that's good. <laughs> that's a simple answer. I like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it doesn't work very well. The, the problem is, number one, many of the things that are coming off have other sources indoors. So you have to separate that. The other issue is it changes. Um, you know, we, we did some really, I mean, it's really fun work um, where, say you have aspergillus and, and penicillium together. And but aspergillus wants to get rid of penicillin because it wants to have aspergillus wants to win. So they have this war between each other, and it's literally chemical warfare where they change the emissions, the the organics that are giving off, trying to kill each other off. And then the one that wins, aspergillus wins, and so then it changes back. Um, so there's. It's a very dynamic process, and so coming up and saying, if you find a signature that you definitely have mold, doesn't work very well. And the signature changes with age, with the age of the mold. I see. So I, I love it when you get me, just don't use it. Okay, I like that. Let's go to the next one here. Um, how about um, the musty odor we get in these buildings a lot of times? And we don't always see a clear, you know, visual evidence of mold in the buildings. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that? I mean, I guess there's got to be mold somewhere, so we've got to track it down. But um, beyond that, do you think these VOCs actually cause some of the health effects that people claim to have from being in, you know, damp and moldy buildings? Yes. I, mean, I have I have a colleague I work with, Sid Crow. Um, he's a fungal physiologist. I love the term because I never heard it before he told me. Um he, you know, he thinks it's the combination of the VOCs and the mold that really cause the problem. Hmm. Our noses are much more sensitive than our instrumentation. I didn't know, you know, our instrumentation is getting better all the time. And so when you smell it, sometimes it's, it's almost a psychological trigger. Sometimes it's a real trigger. I'm so glad I asked. I wasn't going to. I wrestled over that question. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm so glad I asked. Now, and one more before we go to the roundup. With respect to VOCs, whether they're from, you know, uh, biological or, or not, how effective is building bake-out with respect to, you know, helping with removal of these volatile organic compound emissions? 
Uh, you're, you're better off flushing the building than baking it out. Um, you can't really get the building hot enough without causing severe damage to the building to do much. Um, and, and there have been a number of cases where there has been damage to the building with bake out. Um, you know, fl- flushing is pretty much just as effective because that's all you're doing, really. You're, you're using more energy and um, potentially damaging the building with the bake out, in my opinion. I love it. We're getting some nice, straightforward answers here today. I love this. All right. I've got to ask one more then, and then we'll go to the roundup. Uh, all right. We were talking. Oh, I'm just curious. I didn't see anything in, in your CV or the papers that I looked at about the, the hydroxyl radical machines that people were using these days in buildings. Do you have any any experience with those or any insight on um, – I, I just did a job, actually. I came back from it last night, and it was actually – somewhat effective in removing some fuel oil odor in a, in a building that I was just um, evaluating. And I'm curious, do you have any experience with that? Any thoughts on those? Um, I haven't used them and I honestly have not researched them. Um, my, it is just pure opinion, nothing else. Uh, I think that most likely what you're doing is ozone and not really hydroxyl radical. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the theoretical concept, it, it, you're, the potential of causing greater harm is huge Okay. than, than causing help. You know, and I, what uh, you kind of confirmed my thoughts on it was that, okay, fine, if, if this works, then, uh, you know, I, I just can't buy the people can still be in the buildings line of, line of reasoning i'm just having a real hard time with that so at a minimum i feel like we ought to at least keep people out of the building while you're doing this and the second thing i've seen a lot of and and i was curious and I, you kind of confirmed with me that a lot of times i think it's ozone that's that's helping make these you know break down whatever um off gassing is occurring so interesting all right well we're going to do a show on that in the future but before we go let's get our good friend and technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, And we're going to go to our roundup, Dr. Bear, where we ask one final question. If we go over by five minutes, are you going to be okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Great. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out. Cut him out, ride him in, raw Let's go. Cliff, do you have any final questions before we get Dr. Wow on the line? No, no. Dieter can have my time. That's fine. Great. Let's get Dr. Dietrich Wow on. All right. Dieter, do we have you on the line? Yes, I am, miraculously. <laughs> I guess the science fair didn't it happen. Would, huh? It would have been a bigger miracle if I would have found a parking spot to do my job at 1 o'clock. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Well, anyway, I'm glad you can make it because I know this is the type of show you enjoy. I'm curious. Um, I know you'll have some comments. Any comments and questions? Uh, yeah, well, a, a bunch of them. And uh, I, 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 I really 
enjoyed uh, Dr. Bayer's comments on females in engineering or science. I started at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Engineering, where we have you know, civil engineering and uh, aeronautical engineering and mining engineering, chemical engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical. I, I don't know how many students there were. When I started, there was not one woman in the whole building. Wow. Unbelievable. And then one young lady came uh, in, and she was, I think she was in mechanical engineering. I was at the time part-time, but I heard of her. Everybody in the whole building knew that woman. <laughs> it's amazing. And if you go today, uh, uh, you see a completely different picture, and I love it. Great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a a, a, a female, a woman, uh, uh, a young lady uh, learning uh, math and physics and uh, apply it in engineering. Uh, that is the one thing. I, I was laughing when I heard that. I heard again, ventilation is by and large poor. And I understand and I, I believe that. I, that's, that's what I did many, many years ago. I designed ventilation systems. And, um, you know, while you're on that, dear, let me, let me get Dr. Bear back in here for a moment because there was a, a DOE study that you did um, with humidity control and active ventilation and indoor air quality in schools. And I'm curious what were, you know, um, Dr. Wow and, and I both find ventilation's a major problem in, in all kinds of buildings. I assume you found the same thing in this study on schools. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, well, what were the, do you have any like practical, you know, what, what would you say came out of that work that, that we could put into, you know, into, into play here? Any practical tips or strategies, et cetera? Um, the, the most important thing is you really do need to have ventilation in the schools and not just off and on. It means, you know, they need ventilation the whole time and you need it and you need in, at least in this area of the country, you definitely need humidity control. Especially when you're bringing in all that nice, warm, humid outdoor air, huh? Yeah. Or very dry, <laughs> cold air. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. I didn't think of it that way, Dieter. That's another. Yep. You know, you yeah. got both sides of the coin there. Okay, Dieter. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I oh, no, no, my... no interruption. On the contrary, and uh, you know, I agree wholeheartedly that, and the problem with ventilation is, by and large, ah, I don't want to insult anybody, but I try to put that mildly. Uh, many architects today. In the old days, architects were applied engineers. Today, they are artists. And they say, okay, I got the windows in. I got the walls up. We got a roof over. I said, oh, my God, we have to get put ventilation. Yeah, somebody else just put the ventilation in there. And I've seen ductwork with a thousand dampers. Dampers are excuses for I don't really know where the flow is going. So I hope for the best. And maybe I can throttle it here and there. <laughs> that. I have seen it a hundred times. I'm not making that up, believe me. <laughs> so uh, uh, I think that is certainly a, a, a huge problem in many instances. Uh, noise from ventilation, uh, not in my bedroom, not in a classroom. No, it shouldn't be there. And if it is designed correctly, there isn't any, but it has to be done. 
uh, Dr. Bayer also <laughs> mentioned the elevators and air shafts, uh, which do present a problem in high-rise buildings. And again, nobody thought of it. They said, boy, we have all of a sudden, we have a chimney here, and now we have an elevator going up and down that compresses the air. It, it does work very nicely. <laughs> she also mentioned, and I said that before, these air fresheners. I hate them. Yeah, yeah. These in the old days, I don't know whether that is still true today, but 50 years ago, air fresheners had an active ingredient which numbed um, uh, the smelling sensation of the person who was in the room. Hmm. Now, that's cheating, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> the olfactory nerve endings were paralyzed, so you didn't... Oh, that smells good. Well, it didn't smell good. It shouldn't be. Now, the other thing, and that is somewhat dear to me, because I have been looking into it, and I got almost the exact same answers that Dr. Bayer got. With that asthma, what is triggering it? Now, we have a huge problem over here. A, we know there is asthma in the world, whatever it is. 10% plus, depending on the country, but somewhere between 10 and 20% of people are asthmatic. Now, this is a huge, is that an epidemic? I call it an epidemic, believe me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here comes the problem. And Dr. Bayer, they found that after they researched it, we are fortunately, and 99.999% of the time, outbred people. So in other words, we have a population which we want to study. Now, we are all different, fortunately. So it is incredibly difficult to do these studies with inbred mice or rats or guinea pigs. Now you go out there, what is the trigger? How do you measure it? What was the trigger yesterday or two days ago in her house? Yeah. Now that woman or that boy or girl or whoever, that person is in the office and hey, I said, I have asthma. Now, was it the office? Was it yesterday? Was it two days ago? It is one of the most difficult things, and I don't think we will ever really find an answer for that. Hmm. I worked with similar issues when I worked for the Bayer, and no, no relation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, uh, I don't know. The Bayer <laughs> Chemical Corporation, and we were interested in looking at sen uh, chemical sensitization to chemicals which Bayer produced. And uh, again, we ran into the same problem. Some people react like crazy and others sitting there, so what the heck are you talking about? Nothing is happening to me. So it's tough enough. I don't you... know. It's tough enough when you've got these, you know, papered um, guinea pigs and mice that, you know, you know you've got the same, pretty much the same makeup within them. It's tough enough to get answers with that type of stuff. And I can control the exposure. That is imperative. Yeah. 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 If I get up in the morning and I breathe my air over here, then I jump in the car. Then I breathe what the off-gassing is in my car and what is in the car in front of me and behind me. Then I go to an office. I go to the supermarket. And then I come home and say, <coughs> I don't know what did it. Right, right. And uh, it is incredibly difficult. And um, 
I mean, I certainly don't have an easy uh, answer and a solution uh, to it. But the other thing is, and that is, I know that from my own experience. When I went to school, I went to school in a, in a village. I think at the time there were 30 houses. And our classroom was one room. The first row was the first grade. The second row was the second grade. And the third row was the third grade, believe it or not. Now, the next thing is there was absolutely no ventilation and the windows were open, summer or winter. So I had never, ever any problem when I went to <laughs> school. Good <Yeah, the> ventilation. <laughs> Didn't button up the building. There was no insulation. I'm sure there was no insulation. I, I haven't checked that, but I'm sure it hasn't. Uh, on the other hand, in the little village, I've never seen a car. I didn't know what a car was. Are you kidding? Right, right. And uh, so uh, that was an entirely different uh, environment. And I never even heard of asthma until I came to the United States. Yeah. And it's my understanding that it is in Germany also on the rise. Maybe, just maybe, because our indoor air is not controlled in a way that it should be. And the other one is, I do agree with the VOCs for mold. Of course, you need a couple of more than one or two of them. But if you just think of how powerful some of the VOCs which are produced by mold can be uh, uh, think of penicillium. You know, it puts out penicillin, and we know what that one does. Many people heard of cyclosporin, uh, which is a, a mold, and uh, cyclosporin is uh, uh, synthesized, or not synthesized, it's obtained from there. I don't know, maybe somebody can synthesize it today. And what do we use cyclosporin for? We give it to people who had uh, organ transplants to knock down their immune system. Right. Now, right. do I believe that VOCs from one of the 10 or 100,000 moles have similar activity on the human body? Yes, I do. And also be very careful with nitrogen dioxide and ozone. Uh, it chews up the lung and that opens up gates for things to go from the lung into the bloodstream, which normally don't go over there. Besides, it is highly reactive, and that will definitely and very easily uh, 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 trigger an asthma attack. And I shut up after this. Well, Dieter, <laughs> thanks as always. Dr. Bear, before we go, uh, any comments on what Dieter just said and then anything that we missed that, that you'd like to add? And, and we're looking forward to having you back next week. Oh, thank you. No, um, you know, he's, it was interesting uh discussion on the schools i mean there's a there's um for a while there was a lot of discussion about whether this was a u.s problem primarily because we used mechanical ventilation so much versus europe that did not so it's just kind of interesting to listen to him talk about his early schools um and and you know the, the fact that they they were open because they had to be absolutely yeah. And, you know, what I'd like to do is just kind of give listeners a little preview for next week. Um, we, we wanted to make sure we got through your work at Georgia Tech and, and the work with the USGBC this week. And next week, what we'd like to do is go into some of the, the things you were doing with Hygieia Sciences, which I understand is more, you know, uh, more current, uh, more, you know, that's, that's where a lot of your activity is today and development of uh, some 
some interesting, and I'm not sure if these are, I guess it's a breath analyzer, a breathalyzer, and I know Cliff had an interesting uh, trivia question about that this week. Um, I'm really looking forward to next week coming back and talking a little bit more about some of your work with respect to uh, health and breath and so on. Uh, maybe you could give us a little teaser here before we go. Um, well, I, you know, Hygea does a combination of breath analysis uh, uh, with, with trying to commercialize it um, and high-level research consulting for indoor air. I see. And then the breath analysis is just fascinating. What what got you started with that? I'm just curious. Um, you know, air is air is air. I don't really care what the source of air is. <laughs> and the breath is just another source of air. I uh, I got started in um, the breath analysis. You know, it, it can be used for exposures, um, um, but the curiosity on how can we it use it as a non-invasive disease detection, particularly we started with breast cancer. I see. You know, it's funny. I had a, an interesting chat with a, a former intern of mine last week, and he's working for – he's an electrical engineer working for a company that's developing – they're working on a pill, I guess, that you can take and help with determining whether or not breast cancer is developing. It's got a little radioactive source in it and so on. It's fascinating what's going on in the medical world today. I look forward to talking to you more about that next week. I thank you so much for joining us here this week. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we go? No, I can't wait till next week. I'll have some questions then for sure. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to our guest, Dr. Charlene Bear. Thank you for uh, assisting us at the controls, Jessica Lawson. Thanks to Dr. Dietrich Weil for joining us, our technical director, of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, and our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks for the great questions today, everyone. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode with Dr. Bear, part two, on IAQ Radio.